you're like me, you could probably come up with a lot of reasons to love the internal combustion engines. Just think about it. Pistons shooting up and down inside these cylinder walls, sucking in fresh air polluted with atomized gasoline, then compressing that mixture, igniting it with a spark of electricity, and then that explosion drives the piston down and propels the bike forward. Then back up again to expel the burnt fuel and, and dirty air, and the cycle begins again thousands of times every minute. It's a marvel of engineering. And it's become so advanced since the early days of the 1800s when it was first invented. Now, it's advanced incredibly. Electronic ignition, fuel injection, computer-controlled engine management systems. This is all fairly new stuff. Variable valve timing, not to mention the uncelebrated advances. Those are the things that nobody talks about, like gaskets, piston rings, bearings, metallurgy, but especially oil seals. Think about how many bikes you see leak oil nowadays. And we've come a long way with this internal combustion engine. But I think you're going to find it more and more difficult to find people that don't agree that we're sort of reaching the end of the line for the gas engine, no matter how advanced it has become or even may become in the next few years. We all recognize that we're living in a sort of a massive change time right now in so many ways, the internet and, and all technology. But here I'm talking about the engine and its inevitable replacement, the electric motor. The writing's on the wall. We're going electric. And maybe you aren't excited about it. Maybe you even hate the idea. But it's already here. That electric motor, that, that's not new. It's been around for a long time, since way back in the 1800s. Experiments beginning even before that. But the electric motor, that's not the reason that we have electric motor or electric cars and motorcycles on the road today. And it's not pollution concerns either. It's the battery. I mean, all those things have a, a part in it, but the big part is the battery because battery technology has changed the way we store electricity. And equally important, the way we put the electricity into those batteries. In my mind, the battery is the real hero because never before in history has electric power been stored so densely in such a practical way as to be carried on a vehicle, and in this case, a motorcycle. And battery technology is still changing, still advancing, even as I speak. If things keep going on the trajectory that we're on, speaking electric vehicles, not too far down the road, it will be our only choice for transportation. And that's what makes it so exciting. We're living through a ton of firsts here as our transportation system evolves into something that's probably unrecognizable from where we started. And it's quite exciting for us to watch these firsts. You know, you see people overcoming the obstacles and adopting new technology like this one, riding the Trans-American Trail coast to coast on an electric motorcycle. Now, sure, in years ahead, everybody's going to be doing it. But this is, as we've been told, the first crossing coast to coast on the tat by electric motorcycle. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Bill Bragoo. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Sean Thomas. And this is Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Products is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. Cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Okay. I'm Amy Edwards. I'm from North Carolina, and I'm an engineer. My husband and I run a small engineering company together. And I'm Kevin Edwards. Also from North Carolina. Well, I'm an engineer also. 
Amy and Kevin, <laughs> welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for having us. And not only are you guys engineers, but you're also motorcyclists. That's right. I've been riding. I got my first bike when I was 15. In Florida at the time, you could get a learner's permit and ride up to 150cc bikes. So I got a, a GN125 Suzuki. I got bitten by the bug in college and uh, I'd never ridden a motorcycle, didn't grow up riding motorcycles. And I just on impulse decided one day there was something, something about it I was drawn to. And I signed up for the MSF course and took the classes and bought some gear and it's uh, snowballed ever since. Oh, well, so have you guys been riding ever since then? Yes. We, we've always had bikes and ridden together and traveled together on bikes, uh, first road touring, camping, that kind of thing all around the U.S. Probably our longest trips at this point, uh, 2014, we did a road, mostly on-road trip to Alaska from North Carolina. We were on the road two months. Um, and then, of course, this most recent trip this year was about two months long, and that's the longest we've managed to get away so far. But um, we went from road riding to a little bit of dual sport and kind of adventure riding. And we seem to be getting more and more into that. And the more we travel on bikes, the further and longer we want to travel on bikes. So it's, it's beginning to spiral out of control at this point. <laughs> out of control. I like that. You're both mechanical engineers. Did you guys meet through this? We did. Um, in college at the university of South Florida, I ran the Society of Automotive Engineers team. We did something called Baja SAE, which is a student competition where we design and build little off-road race cars. And Amy showed up one day and joined the team. And then? <laughs> uh, and then we did student design competitions. So we met in college and then uh, we moved from... Uh, we got engaged and moved Whoa, from hang Florida. On. You, you just skipped right over the whole part. I mean, you, you you met and then what happened? Like, what was it? Was it love at first sight? I'm sort of curious. Did you guys look at each other and say, wow, that's my no, partner? I think we were both, we were both dating other people at the time. Sure. We knew each other for maybe a year and a half before we started dating. Was it? Yeah, I guess so. I think so. <laughs> there's, there's not some great origin story. We had known each other for a while um, on this off-road team. We were both going to school for a while. And then at some point we started dating and then, and then we've been together ever since, but it was not around, it was not around motorcycles. Kevin was riding and I was not. And then I got into it on my own. And then we both really got into motorcycles and apparently each other. And it's been, <laughs> and it's been like that ever since. But you don't really remember what it was. It was, there was no one particular thing. You just sort of said, well, well maybe we'll start dating. I, I don't know. Oh, I'm putting a lot of pressure <laughs> I feel on like there. Maybe I? we should know this origin yeah. story better. Well, uh, I would say I'd had my eye on you, but uh, we were both dating other people, but at some point we weren't. So I asked you out. Yeah. And the rest is history. And, and now you guys, history. You're, you run a business together. So you're working together 24 seven. You're together all the time. You must be compatible. Yeah. Um, it was a risk doing that. Um, out of college, I was working in hydropower for a few years and Amy had a couple of other engineering jobs outside the house, but, um, my business kept growing and I needed some help and Amy wasn't too happy. Um, uh, at her job at the time. So I, we talked about it and decided that she would come work with me. 
And we knew it was a bit of a risk spending that much time around each other, but uh, I think it worked out pretty well. We have different areas of the business that we take care of in separate offices, so we're not right up in each other's way all the time. I was definitely worried about it, um, deciding one, it's a risk, you know, now it's a sole source of income instead of two incomes and being a business for yourself is of course risky. And then trying to be a business partner with your spouse is, uh, like trying to do relationship mode on expert level. So (laughs) (laughs) that's a good description. I like that. (laughs) It's so true, isn't it? Because if anything goes wrong, I mean, all the stops you would normally have at work where you, you know, you don't show your temper or whatever, that's all out the window. Yeah. I think we're very fortunate. Um, I mean, we put some effort into it, obviously, to try to get along. And I think we're fortunate that we're just very naturally compatible. Um, I'm very grateful for it for the motorcycle traveling, too. You know, just because you and your spouse may be best friends doesn't mean that you're going to be good travel partners. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> or, that, or that you're going to want to spend two months on the road around each other all the time or um, or that you can be good business partners and work together in, in, you know, in a professional manner. So I've been pleasantly surprised that all of that has worked out very well. Yeah. Yeah. It is quite, it is quite a risk. There's no doubt about it. And you're taking your vacations together as well. I mean, cause a lot of people who will work together, I mean, you know, you need some sort of time. Some people will have, have a relationship where they'll need some sort of time apart, but you guys are doing your vacations together and they're not really just vacations. You, you mentioned riding to Alaska. I mean, it's obviously that is fun. It's exciting and everything, but there's a certain amount of stress in all of this as well. Well, sure. Even when everything's going right with motorcycle travel, there are times when you're hot or cold or tired or hungry, and um, that that adds to the stress. You know, on the Alaska trip, it was strange. We had no mechanicals, not even a flat tire, and I really don't understand that. (laughs) You were disappointed? (laughs) Well, we were ready for it, but, uh, you know, you'd think 13,000 miles or so, something would go wrong, but uh, we got lucky. Well, it's interesting how many people I talk to that that have done very long trips, even around the world, and you know, and they don't get a flat tire. And you think, how is that possible? How can yeah. you do exactly. that? How yeah. can you possibly ride that long and not have any issues whatsoever? Yeah, but it sometimes it works out. Well, what do you guys do as mechanical engineers? What do you do for your business? We do industrial automation for uh, hydroelectric power plants. Is is the short version? Okay. So yes. so what is that? So we take a power plant that is completely manual. Uh, Picture the the old Frankenstein 1930s black and white movie where they're twisting dials and throwing weavers and such. Mm -hmm. And that was actually filmed in a hydroelectric power plant. And there are plants operating today with controls like that. And you have to have somebody there 24 hours a day to run a plant that way. What we can do is come in and add sensors and, and computers such that the plant can mostly run itself and people can monitor it remotely or come in if there's a problem, but they don't have to be there 24 hours a day. Most of the, most of our customers and most of the plants that we retrofit have had some level of computer automation for some time. Usually it's become obsolete and unsupportable. And our job is to come in and put a modern upgraded industrial automation system in that enables, you know, modern push notifications and remote monitoring and and modern features like those. So this is a pretty big designing stuff. I mean, you're not just going in and replacing a servo motor or or some gauges or something. I mean, you're redesigning things. That's right. Uh, 
the installation is only a small part of the entire job. Most of it is the engineering back in the office. So maybe this is what attracted you to an electric motorcycle? Well, the skill set transfers a little bit. Um, certainly, many of the things that we know from our work uh, have applied to the electric motorcycle, for sure. You just like bikes. <laughs> bikes in general. Well, well, how do you come across yeah. electric motorcycles? I mean, you, you must have seen them somewhere. You sort of give a synopsis of maybe when they caught your attention and when you actually got involved. Sure. Well, I've been interested in zero motorcycles from when I first heard of them, probably about 2008. And uh, back then they didn't really have dealers. They just had these kind of brand ambassadors. Um, I, I went to a guy's house and test rode his zero. And at the time it was more like an electric mountain bike that you think of today. It was not a, a full size motorcycle, but um, it was very interesting, but uh, I wasn't ready to buy one yet. And over ensuing years, the, uh, the zero motorcycles got bigger and better, larger batteries, more powerful motors. And I would test ride it now and then. And uh, in the last few years, they just got to the point to where I, I think I wanted to have one. Now, does part of this come from the whole look into the future? I mean, everyone's talking about going electric right now. I just talked with Can-Am the other day there, and they were saying they have plans in the next, I think, four years to have a, an electric UTV and side-by-side -side and things like that, which present all kinds of problems along the same lines as the motorcycle, but I, I think even more so. I, is it partly that? Like, you sort of see where we're going with this? Yeah, I think it is the future. It's something that we need to do is electrify everything that we can. Of course, uh, I'm biased. Uh, I make electricity for a living. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing when you were saying that. Yeah. <laughs> You're yeah. in the right business well, to think that to, way. I don't know how to make gasoline, but I can make electricity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, of course, gasoline is, is a limited resource, although you know, often we don't act like it is. It's certainly a finite resource for us, whereas electricity, uh, potentially, there, there, I mean, there's a lot of potential there to generate electricity, whether it's hydro or whether it's solar or wind or, or tidal. I mean, there's so many different ways of doing it now. Exactly. And there are people who do this that have a zero or an electric car too, and solar panels on the roof of their house, and they commute just using power that they make themselves. Mm -hmm. I think it's really neat. Yeah, we, we're actually off-grid, and so this show is completely done off-grid. We certainly have a generator cool. backup, but yeah, we have solar panels and a battery bank, and uh, th that's how we do it. And of course, we, we have low-power draws, so we use laptops and things like that that draw low-power. Uh, I often think of when it comes to electric motorcycles and electric cars, I mean, geez, if we were to, to switch very quickly, we don't have the capacity right now to generate enough electricity for everyone to use their vehicles. Well, that's not so much of a problem, in my opinion, because even if everybody started buying electric vehicles today and no one bought another gas vehicle, uh, vehicles tend to last 20 years. So it would take something like two decades to change out the entire fleet. And that's enough time for uh, for the grid to, to respond. And the electric utilities have been looking at low growth rates or even no growth for years because uh, lighting's becoming more efficient and air conditioners and such are more efficient. So they're actually pushing programs to increase electric vehicle adoption as a way to increase demand and, and basically grow their business. 
that's interesting. Now, I, I thought it was the other way around. I remember reading something about this a couple of years back, maybe been more than that, but where they were talking about the uh, number of things that we have plugged in. I mean, we all do, our cell phones and our computers, and there was so much draw from this that was actually affecting the electrical grid. Now, what I didn't take into account there was a thought process that at the same time, probably around then, was when LEDs started to become popular, which drastically reduces our, our lighting draw. And I think most people are probably looking at some sort of LED somewhere um, in their homes at this point. Yeah. Um, I think it's the only way to go at this point. LED lights, um, they look good and they use one-tenth the power and and sure. You didn't buy an electric motorcycle to be green. <laughs> no. Mostly I just think it's neat. <laughs> right. Now you only have the one, right? Just the one zero, yeah. Amy has a WR250R. Right. So what was, what was the reason for buying it? Just because you thought it'd be neat to ride around and then you come up with an idea of what you want to do with it or was it the other way around? Well, really for a few years, we'd been looking at whether it would be possible to ride an electric motorcycle across the Trans-America Trail. And so this is something that we talked about at the dinner table and we weren't quite ready to do it because it's, we were waiting for the technology to be ready, um, to have enough capacity in the batteries to be able to make it through some of the long stretches out west. The, uh, the farthest distance on the Trans-America Trail, this is Sam Carrero's route, the, the longest leg is between Wendover, Utah, and Tremonton, Utah. It's 180 miles with nothing. It's just empty desert out there. So if we wanted to ride the TAT with an electric motorcycle, we needed a bike that could carry all the gear and have the range to make it 180 miles. And that's only become possible since Zero upgraded their batteries in 2018. Amy, what was the purpose of the trip, though? What were you guys hoping to accomplish with this? Is it just a personal goal, or, or what is it? Well, we would have ridden the Trans-America Trail regardless of the component with the electric bike. Um, that was just a, a, a twist on a trip we were already going to take that made it more challenging. And it was. It was um, there was a little bit of attraction to the novelty of trying to push the feasibility of the technology. It's only, it's only like just barely possible to do this with an electric bike. And we were just, we thought we could do it. We thought between the two of us and between the knowledge that we had, we could take this bike and we could make it happen. So we were gonna just do the Trans-America Trail anyway. It's, it's been on the list. It was a matter of having enough time to ride the entire thing coast to coast. And then he's had this idea of trying to do it on the electric bike. And, uh, and it just became possible last year. We just decided, we said, you know, we think we can do it. We should just, we should just do it. And it was, I think it was December of 2020. We decided, yeah, 2021 is going to be the year we're going to, we're going to ride the Trans-America trail and we're going to do it with the zero. And it was a project that pretty much dominated the entire year to be able to make that happen. And this is just a worthy adventure or were you hoping to prove something at the end of it? Well, I, I think just to prove that it could be done and to show that uh, an overland trip like this is possible with an electric motorcycle now. It's it's not as fast as with a gas bike, and we're not saying that. We just wanted to see whether it could be done at all. Yeah, I don't know that we're, we're not really evangelizing, you know, electric vehicles. You know, I don't think everybody needs to go out and buy one or 
or even that the zero is a direct replacement for a gas bike. It's kind of its own thing. It's different. It just, it just, I'm not even sure that we can really articulate why we were drawn to this project. It just, it was one of those goals that seemed maybe almost out of reach, but just close enough that we might be able to do it. It was, it was really a really fun challenge to see if it could be done. Why the TAT? Well, why not BDRs or, or do your own route across the country? Because I know the route has everything to do with dealing with the, the distance that you can ride. You just mentioned that that route in, or the section in Utah that's 180 miles. That's a, the big route that probably could have been detoured and, you know, drop into charging stations. So why the TAT? So the first person to ride across the country on an electric motorcycle was Terry Hirschner in 2013. And he was on riding on the road. And since then, before this year, four other people have done that. But uh, so, so that's been done. And we wanted to try something that's a, a specific long route that's intentionally remote, which the TAD is. It drops into a town every 100 or 150 miles. But uh, by restricting ourselves to a particular route rather than just going from charger to charger, uh, that increased the difficulty for us, which is one thing that we wanted to do is see whether we could find suitable charging along the TAT route, not just anywhere across the country, but specifically on that GPX track. Yeah. If you want to ride an electric bike across the country, it's pretty easy at this point in 2021. You can just ride town to town, charger to charger, it's really, you don't even need special custom modification. You can buy a factory bike, get on it and just ride across the country. It's probably going to be slower than what you would do on a gas bike, but it's not, it's not difficult. The tat is challenging. <laughs> just the, because of its remoteness. That's right. So across the tat, by the time it was all over, we went 7,600 miles. We went from the Atlantic all the way to the Pacific. And we used public chargers, I think, 16 times. Uh, most of the fast charging that we did during the day was at RV campgrounds. Um, that's kind of a secret for people who, who tour on electric motorcycles and cars to a lesser extent. Um, is at RV parks, the 50 amp plug there can, if you have the right equipment, can charge the bike pretty fast. So... Uh, that was part of the the project with this bike was to add fast chargers so that we could use public chargers and RV campground 50 amp plugs so that we could charge the bike up in about an hour. Whereas with the built-in charger, we would have been restricted to charging in about 12 hours. I think you said three years planning. Why did it take three years? Is is it the logistics of charging that took the three years? And if you're doing that, I mean, aside from the from the mods and the bike, we'll, we'll talk about that, but figuring out where you could charge along the route, wouldn't that even change over those three years, I imagine, because they're building charging stations all the time? We didn't really plan the logistics of charging until last year. I think that three years was really just the first time he thought about even trying to do this and what what it might take. We didn't get planning in earnest until until early in 2021 for our late summer trip, I think would be more accurate. Yeah, I see. So what we did is we got the tracks from Sam Carrera and then started looking along those tracks using an app called PlugShare, which is a kind of crowdsourced EV charger locator. 
PlugShare just gives you a map with all these different chargers and what their capabilities are and where they are and so on. And we started looking for those along the route and finding ones that are either right on the route, which often they are, or nearby to the route. And then using other resources, looking for RV campgrounds, or really anywhere that we could find a good public or at least semi-public source for charging. This is the only trip that involved using a giant spreadsheet in order to be able to plan it. (laughs) And that's just for the chargers? Yeah, just the chargers. Um, You know, we try to travel without a plan, um, which this trip wasn't that exactly, but it's not like we had every day planned out. Uh, We never really knew where we were going to stay in a given night. It just depended on how far we got and what kind of mood we were in. We had camping gear, so sometimes we'd just camp in the woods Often we would camp at a commercial campsite where we could plug in the bike, which was nice because then we'd start out the next day with a full charge. Uh, Sometimes we'd stay in a motel. So it just kind of depended on what the weather was doing and how we were feeling. So that's something you figured out as you were going on route. You didn't plan it saying we're staying in a hotel here, we're camping there. Exactly. The pre-planning was just to know that at least somewhere along the route, there was somewhere to plug in. Can you describe the route like in a very broad way? Don't go by, you know, everyone, but in a very broad way, you know, where you start and and where you finish. Sure. Uh, The TAT starts uh, on on a track called the Atlantic Ocean Spur. It starts in Nags Head, North Carolina, right at the ocean. So you can't quite drive out onto the beach there, but uh, we were able to get a picture with the beach and the ocean in the background. And then it follows roads inland, and the first probably 150 miles, something like that, is mostly all paved, just because the through roads out there are paved. But as it gets up into Virginia, it uh, you see more farm roads and gravel roads, and then, then it gets up into the Blue Ridge, and then, then you have good forest roads. And it follows that down for quite a while into, into Tennessee, North Georgia, back into Tennessee, that continues west across to Oklahoma and corner of New Mexico up into Colorado over the high passes in the San Juans. Meanders around Utah for over a thousand miles, I think, uh, up into Idaho and then Oregon. And then finally, we end up on the beach at Port Orford, Oregon. Now, how do you do this logistically? Do, do you truck the bikes to the start point and, and truck them back afterwards? Well, we live in North Carolina, so we actually divided the trip up into two parts. Once we thought we had the bike and the chargers and everything ready, in the spring, we took a loop ride out from our house, out to Nags Head, and rode to basically Damascus, Virginia. Um, We were expecting to plug in in Damascus, but it turned out to be Damascus Trail Days, where the town is taken over by like 20,000 people uh, hiking the AT. And oh, it's this no. giant party and there was no camp. This, it was crazy. It's this tiny mountain town. And we roll in at the end of this trip thinking we're going to grab a campsite and plug in or something. And there are people, there are more people than you can possibly, you can barely get through the streets. People are jogging around. Everybody's drunk. There are vendors. There are, <laughs> there's live music. And we roll into this party and we're like, okay, this maybe looks fun, but like we don't have anywhere to stay. So, we so <laughs> okay. Nowhere to stay. And we were planning on charging there. So the bike was down to like 5% charge. <laughs> so we just rolled into an RV campground and talked to some drunk guys and we hung out with them for an hour and they let us charge off of their outlet. And, uh, 
that gave us enough juice to get uh, down the road about 20 miles to another campground. <laughs> anyway, so we finish up in Virginia and um, we have to do more work over the summer. And then we left in the middle of August back from our house in North Carolina to do the rest of the Transamerica Trail west from our house in North Carolina. So we left in the middle of uh, August sometime and then continued west. Mm, and then at the end, do you ride back? No, in this case, we uh, we wanted to, and we would have liked to keep going, but we really needed to get back for work. So we shipped the bikes and flew back. It would have taken, especially with the electric bike, um, we would have ridden back on paved roads um, just because it, it's pr a pretty slow way to go. <laughs> Riding across the country on the Trans-America Trail is probably about the slowest way to actually go across the country. <laughs> but it's the most fun and scenic, right? Obviously, that's yeah. why we do it. Um, we would have loved to have ridden back on paved roads, but I think it probably would have taken at least another 10 days or two weeks or something for us to get back from Port Orford. And uh, we'd already taken our two month window of time at that point, And we, we had obligations to get back to. So as you're planning for this, what challenges aside from the charging did you anticipate with the ride? Well, uh, one thing about it is the, the zero DSR that I took, um, it's really just a lightly modified version of their street bike, the S. It has a little longer suspension, like seven inches of suspension travel. It still has cast wheels. It's at least a 19-inch wheel in the front, but it's, it's not a very good off-road bike. It's okay on gravel roads. But then I loaded it down with the extra battery and the chargers and all our luggage. You know, we've got food and cooking gear and camping gear and everything. So it ended up being quite heavy. So just... Muscling that bike across the tat is not what I would choose in a perfect world, but uh, I figured I could do it. Uh, but really, this bike fully loaded with camping gear and everything was about 590 pounds. Mm. Whereas Amy on her WR, her bike was only about 350 pounds, you know, with all the camping gear and everything, which is much more manageable. What is the zero way from the factory with the single battery? Right. Um the DSR with the 14 kilowatt hour battery is about 420 pounds. I mean, this is not a super light bike to begin with. Correct. And of those 420 pounds, probably 200 pounds is battery. Um, that's, that's just the way it is with lithium ion batteries right now is to get enough energy to, to have a reasonable range. It, it ends up being pretty heavy. An electric car, you don't notice that it has a thousand pounds of batteries in it, but on a bike, you do notice it. Mm -hmm. Well, in the car, you, you've got the engine and transmission that you've done away with, I guess, to, to recoup some of that weight, whereas the bike, not so much. Right. So, so that's the limit with that. And then just the, the stock battery wouldn't be enough to give us the range we needed in some of the remote sections out west. So Zero has a factory option to add another battery to increase the range 25%. So we did that, but that's another 44 pounds. <laughs> and so it goes. Well, and it went... You can either have the extra battery or the factory fast charger. You can't have both. They take up that same location in the traditional fuel tank position on a bike. Uh, so if you put the extra battery in there, all you get is the level one onboard slow charger. So, so okay. So, so what you're saying is that you're one way you, without that extra battery, you could charge fast and be on the road again very quickly. But by putting in the extra battery, you lost that capacity and now you're on the slow charge circuit. So, this is where you start modifying the bike, I gather. 
Yeah. That's right. Yeah. To, to get the best of both worlds, we needed all the battery we could get and fast charging. So it so happened when we really started thinking about this late last year, um, Amy noticed on Facebook Marketplace that a guy was putting up for sale uh, some aftermarket fast chargers made by a company called DigiNow. Uh, four chargers that would let me charge the bike in about an hour. And uh, they were used and available. The The caveat to that is DigiNow doesn't make those chargers anymore. So this is a used part that's not really supported by the factory anymore. You can't buy parts for it new. But it was just the right thing for what we wanted to do. So we went for it anyway and, and bought it off the guy. We got really lucky because there's not really that many DigiNow chargers out there or or anything equivalent that would get the function that we really needed. People will argue that, but the DigiNows were probably about the best thing we could do with technology at the time. And they just happened to come up for sale in right when we were thinking about doing this project. So we really lucked out in even being able to get the chargers that we needed to really maximize the the charge rate on the zero. Now, now you, this charger just goes on the battery. I mean, I, I was thinking that with the zero, that everything was very proprietary and, and it wouldn't be easy to, you know, just connect another charger to your battery bank. Is that not the case? Well, it took some work, but uh, zero does have a cable and connector where you can attach an external charger and that is officially supported. They sell some fast chargers, accessory fast chargers, but they're only about one kilowatt each. The DigiNow chargers, the four of them combined can push about 13 kilowatts. And so we were able to hook two of the chargers up to that accessory port and then wire the other two chargers directly onto some terminals on the motor controller. This is all custom design that Kevin has done. These, um, DigiNow controllers, uh, you can buy the parts, but there's, it's not like a, a simple matter of installing them on the bike. And these are pretty fairly large, heavy power conversion equipment that you wouldn't normally think to put on a motorcycle. They're not, they're not huge if you were putting them in a car, but I mean, how much do they weigh? Um, just the chargers are about eight pounds each. So that's 32 pounds, but then I had to package them. So to do that, I built some aluminum boxes to carry them, kind of like panniers, uh, on each side of the rear wheel, and to keep them dry and uh, protected. And then what I did is I slung my soft saddlebags over top of the charger boxes. And so, sir, so just, just the chargers and the boxes and the wires, you're pushing 45, 50 pounds uh, that you've added on with that? Yeah, altogether, it's about 50 pounds worth of chargers. Wow. Yeah. Well, that, that's a lot that really doesn't do much for you other than get you fueled, basically. But it doesn't, other than that, it's just sitting there waiting for you to do the fueling process. Absolutely. You're carrying around heavy power conversion equipment that you're not using while you're riding. You're only using when you're stationary at your charge point. And th the reason that's true is that the Zero can only charge using AC sources. So you can use your regular 120 volt um, wall outlet or with these DigiNow chargers, you can use your 240 volt sources, your 50 amp source and charge with the four chargers in about an hour. But you can't use DC fast charging like any of the Tesla superchargers or any of the CCS chargers that modern cars are using. That's really the, the standard that's coming, but zeros are not currently compatible with any DC fast charging. 
And it's unfortunate because the advantage of DC fast charging is you are not carrying around heavy power conversion equipment in the vehicle itself that's handled by the the charging station. So Mm -hmm. in some future, when electric motorcycles can use DC fast charging, you won't need heavy power conversion equipment in order to be able to charge at reasonable rates. Wouldn't that be a fundamental thing in the design of an electric motorcycle? I mean, because you're talking about weight. Exactly. We think it's going to become very important. Um, Zero does not currently support DC fast charge. The Harley Livewire does and Energica does. And it's, uh, I think it's a great advantage. Although for the TAT, it wouldn't have made much difference because in these little towns we were going through and back in the woods, there aren't DC fast chargers, at least not yet. Maybe in five years there will be. Hmm. No, you needed, you needed to use AC charging anyway. Um, so the Zero was, was really the best possible choice for an electric motorcycle for this trip. Because, I mean, DC fast charging is, is the future of electric vehicles, but there's no way it matters for a, like a Transamerica trail trip. Just yet. Right. We had to be able to just use what infrastructure we could find along the way. And that meant AC charging. And that meant we had to carry along 50 pounds of chargers. Right. And these chargers now, you said it's taking 240 volts, which most people probably recognize from maybe their stove plug-in or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 240 volts and converts it down and charges the battery. But um, that means you that's why you had to go to RV places. This is not a regular outlet that you can just plug it into. Right. Well, we can. I can plug one charger into a regular 120-volt outlet and charge the bike in about 10 hours. So overnight, that's fine. In fact, it's better for the batteries to not get so hot. But... To be able to ride through a morning and then charge for an hour over lunchtime, which we often did, we needed to be able to charge fast. And that requires like an RV 50 amp plug or two, they're called J1772. They're just your standard level two chargers that you see around. We could use those as well. If, if you don't put the fast charging on there, if you just use your level one slow charge, you're limited really to riding the range of one battery pack in a day, which at tat speeds is maybe 120 miles. So that's that would be as far as you could go in any given day. But with the fast chargers, you could ride, you know, you could get at least two charges in, in a day. Um, I think the most miles we ever did in a day. About 235 miles, I think, in a day. Yeah, which yeah. honestly... That seems low for the way a lot of people ride, but the way we travel, even on gas bikes, if we're doing any sort of off-pavement riding, we usually don't go further than that anyway. Yeah, I was going to say off-pavement. I mean, that that slows you down anyway. But so you could have done it without doing these chargers, without finding these chargers, if you had more time. Really, that's what it comes down to. You may want to move slower. That's right. Uh, Just taking a stock zero with the the built-in slow charger, you could have done the whole trip. It just would have taken probably two or three weeks longer. That's a, that's a long time, two or three weeks. Yeah. I, years ago, we had uh, a woman on, Trui Hanoi, I, I believe was her name, and she rode an electric motorcycle. I, I'm not sure where she went now. I can't remember the story exactly, but it was, it was around Europe. But if I remember correctly, that's what she was doing. It wasn't fast charge. It was plugging in and sort of waiting for long periods of time, which if you have the time, that's fine. Right. We're familiar with her story. We, she went from Belgium to Turkey. And back. 
Um, yeah, slow charging the whole way, which uh, I think is really an exercise in patience. But uh, yeah, if you got to well, stop somewhere and plug in for 10 hours and then find something to do, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess maybe it depends on you. It, it can depend. Uh, maybe it, it also depends on what the ride is about, because to me, riding the tat is about the ride. It's about your experience while, you know, finding your route, et cetera. Whereas uh, maybe if you went, to, if you're going to South America, it would be about experiencing the culture. So you could find other things to, to sort of keep you busy or that you're interested in while your bike charges. That's right. Um, and really having to go knock on doors and ask to, uh, to plug in is kind of an opener to, to meeting some people. So with the right mindset, I think it's an interesting way to, to travel slowly. Did you do any of that in the U.S.? No, we didn't have to. We were trying not to bother anybody. So we either used commercial chargers or we charge where we were staying for the night or we would go into a commercial RV campground and ask if we could charge. And sometimes it, it took them a, a, just a few seconds to really grasp just what we were asking for because it's such an unusual thing. But uh, the answer was almost always yes. Yeah, we, we really didn't want to. Um, we wanted to only engage with public infrastructure or public facing businesses. We didn't we didn't want to just go begging for power from random private people and bothering people <laughs> across the country. You know, it, you know, it's one thing for us to want to, you know, to, to want to try to do this particular trip across the country. It's another to involuntarily recruit other people into helping you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you've got to explain the whole thing because if somebody comes in and says, can I draw some of your power? It instantly, I think would pop into people's head. Well, how much power are we talking about here? You know, exactly. What are you going to draw my grid down to? Right. So a full charge on this bike uh, uses less than $2 worth of power. And we would always offer to pay somebody five bucks or something. And if you took us up on that, most people just wave their hand and say, go charge. So Two they weren't bucks. worried about it. That, that yeah. is so inexpensive. So what was your total fuel cost, do you know, for riding the, the zero on the tat? Yeah. So directly paid for charging. It was about $75. <laughs> but you know, there are times when maybe we got a commercial campground instead of just staying in a free forest site. Mm -hmm. And so we paid for a commercial camp because there was power. So maybe, it's kind of fuzzy just exactly how much we spent on charging. Or maybe we stayed in a hotel because we were out of range and that's where we could get to. And we would have, if we'd been on gas bikes, we would have kept going. So how many more hotels did we stay in? because of the electric bike versus not. And that's a hard, that's a hard question to answer, right? It's so directly paying for, for charging $75, but how much more indirect cost did we incur because we were on the electric bike and needed that infrastructure in a way that we wouldn't have had we both been on gas bikes. So. And how much know. money did that gas guzzling WR250R take to, to get across the country? It came to about $500. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's a, that, that is a considerable difference um, between the two. But I mean, obviously there's, there's all kinds of limitations. Um, what, what's it like for you, Amy, riding the WR250R, great bike, uh, riding along with the electric bike that is somewhat limited? Well, when you're actually riding, um, the Zero is a much more powerful, much faster bike. So it... I didn't really notice too much. I got to ride the Zero a couple of times and it's a little bit big and heavy for me personally, especially off pavement. So I wouldn't choose one for myself. I'd choose a smaller, lighter model. Mm -hmm. But um, 
the few times that I rode it for a few miles, it is, it's like a totally different experience. It was, I, I really enjoyed the little bit that I did get to ride it. Where I noticed it is um, Kevin on the WR through certain more technical sections needs to ride it. It's not as capable an off-road bike as a WR is obviously. And the TAT is largely not a technical route. It's mostly just gravel roads, but in the times where it did get a little rougher, uh, I, I'd have to wait on him to pick his way through. The, the Zero's heavy. It doesn't have a lot of suspension travel or clearance. And I definitely noticed um, when he's on his WR and we're and I'm on mine and we're riding together, he's a better rider than I am. And I can. it's usually me trying to keep up. But when he's on the Zero, it's definitely the other way around. We're going to take just a short break. I've got a couple of things that I want to tell you about. I'm, I'm sure you're going to be interested in hearing, but stick around because when we come back, we're going to talk, we, we've got a lot more to talk about. One of the things we're going to start off with is what it's like to ride an electric bike with no clutch in the rough stuff. Stay with us. Giant Loop, again, a company started by a rider and owned, still owned and run by a rider, Harold Cecil. You can't beat that because riders care about riding and they care about other riders. It's kind of in our DNA. Through that hard work of Harold and, and the people who work for him and the, the dedication they have to the end user, Giant Loop has gained a reputation for tough light gear. In fact, their motto is go light, go fast, go far with Giant Loop. The Giant Loop difference is that they make bags for the job. So unnecessary weight and bulk are removed from their designs. And that way they can focus on lighter, simpler approaches that serves the purpose, but without all the extra buckles and straps that are so common today. Giant Loop is well known for their loop style bag that, that goes over any bike and you don't need a rack for it. And they have handlebar bags, tank bags, and some really nice looking panniers. Their website is giantloopmoto.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And by the way, you, you can find Giant Loop at all kinds of places that sell quality motorcycle gear. Giantloopmoto.com. I'm sure you've heard the instructors that we have here on our exclusive Rider Skills program on Adventure Rider Radio extol the virtues of standing on your foot pegs. So you get that. The question is, what are you standing on? Now think about this. If you're going to hike in the mountains, you're going to go on a big hike somewhere, would you wear sneakers? No, of course not. Why would you use anything less than proper foot pegs on your bike then? IMS Products makes those foot pegs and they do it by using design and engineering gained from over 40 years of experience in business in doing just this. Things like their watershed design, which prevents the mud from jamming in the foot peg, or the staggered tooth design that allows better grip with less wear and tear on your boots, or the materials they use, like CAST certified 17-4 stainless steel, a certified heat treating process, and all of this is done in the U.S. Now, because IMS foot pegs are designed and manufactured so tough, they can warranty them, and they do. They warranty them for life. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, make sure you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Moto Camp Nerd. Moto Camp Nerd. 
It's a motorcycle camping store. Actually, they call it the motorcycle camping store because they say it's the only one of its kind. And, and I've looked around. I haven't seen anything like this before either. I, I really like this. Moto Camp Nerd is the brainchild of Ben and Mary Williams from Trinity, North Carolina. And what they've done is they've made a store that focuses 100% on motorcycle camping gear. That's it. That's what they do. Uh, they stock the gear as well. They don't drop ship it. it it's, it's right from their store. And um, they stock quality gear. In fact, they're authorized dealers for brands like Nemo, Big Agnes, and Sea to Summit. Ben and Mary, the owners, are also motorcycle campers. So when you're dealing with Moto Camp Nerd, you're dealing with riders that care very much about what they're doing. Husband and wife team, much like Elizabeth and myself here. And you know, this could solve a lot of dilemmas for riders when trying to decide on gear. I mean, we hear questions like this all the time. Which tent is best suited for motorcycle camping? Which one's the best to pack? Well, go by their website. It's called motocampnerd.com. You're going to find gear that only suits motorcycle camping. So they've looked at it. They've thought about it. They didn't just stock stuff. They've actually thought about this stuff and checked it out. Probably tried everything, I would imagine, and found stuff that works best for us riders. And Ben and Mary are also there to answer your questions. So if you have any questions about, you know, what you should be getting or maybe the difference between whatever, shoot them an email, send them a message, and they say they're happy to deal with that motocampnerd.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. motocampnerd.com. What's it like to ride without a clutch and the technical stuff? I mean, we, we talk about, we, we have our rider skills program. We talk about slipping the clutch all the time and it's how you, you know, lower your speed. With the electric bike, I mean, you don't do that, obviously, and you don't have any need to because you're starting at zero and, and going infinitely um, up as far as adjustment for throttle goes. So what's that like? I've spent so many years learning how to use the clutch, right? Mm-hmm. And... Having no clutch does take a bit of adjustment. Uh, For one thing, (laughs) I I still occasionally reach for the clutch and try to shift a shift lever that's not there, uh, accelerating out of a turn or something. But in the technical riding, yeah, you can't just instantly cut the power by pulling in the clutch. So it's all throttle control. And the zero throttle is quite good. It's, It's very linear and responsive. But... Uh, This bike has 70 horsepower and no transmission and no clutch. So if you lose traction, that rear wheel can spin up so fast and spit you off. Um, So it does require some finesse on the throttle to to maintain traction and to go up, say, a steep rocky scramble, uh, giving it just the right amount of throttle to get up, but not so much that you just throw rocks everywhere and and, uh, end up you know, crashing. Um, another thing is going downhill. So on a gas bike downhill, you might just put it in first gear, let out the clutch and just kind of motor down, right? And use the engine braking to control your descent on a steep, steep downhill. The Zero does have regenerative braking to an extent. Uh, and that's where it uses the motor as a generator. So you're slowing down the bike and putting power back into the battery. It feels like engine braking. It feels like right. engine braking. And it happens automatically. As soon as, as soon as you back off the throttle and, and the inertia is pushing the bike, then it's generating power and charging your battery. Yep. And there's a step up also on the zero when the brake light comes on. It's just on off with the brake light. So it's not proportional. But uh, they phase that out below 13 miles an hour. So when you're going down a really slow, steep descent, you have no engine braking. So it's just like riding a bike that's in neutral. None at all. A, 400, a 450 or 500 pound freewheeling bicycle. 
Oh, yeah. that, you know, I, I know I'll, I'll tell you, I've had this experience with an ATV. As a matter of fact, it was, it was a Can-M that we had. And it had a weird little spot with the, the way the, the CVT transmission worked that if you gave it a little bit of gas going down the hill, you were freewheeling. And it was very unnerving. That was difficult to deal with. Yes. Yes, it's quite difficult. Um, so then it's all about brake control, which is fine. I can do that. But I did wear out a pair of, or a set of brake pads in the course of the TAT, um, especially in the San Juans in Colorado, going down some of those steep passes, the brake wear was very fast because there's nothing you can do except ride the brakes all the way down. Mm-hmm. And and it's just, as riders, you know, that's, that's hard to do. There's only so much braking and turning you can do on a loose surface, not having that engine braking to help you control your descent and trying to go around a, a turn or something. It's, you know... There's, there's only so much braking and turning a tire can do. <laughs> yeah, and it, it certainly changes the dynamics of the ride, no doubt. But also with the, with engine braking, it, it's sort of your backup in a way. I guess as you're going down a hill, you, when your brakes heat up and you start to lose braking power because you've been braking for a long descent, you've got engine braking there still. But with this, you've got nothing. That's right. So we knew that going in and uh, took it accordingly and you know, take breaks and such. And, and I would check on, on how hot the calipers were getting and, and so on. But uh, we made it through, but it was trickier. And the thing is, this is really just a software matter. The The motor controller could provide powerful engine braking almost down to zero miles an hour. But um, this is mainly a street bike and they have it tuned to be safe on the street. And what you don't want is for just a normal rider out riding on the street to roll off the throttle and the rear wheel locks up. Mm. So um, they're erring on the side of caution of not having too much engine braking. Although in my case, riding the TAT, I would have liked more. Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of things to consider when it comes to designing an electric bike and and us adapting to the way we ride it. But the other thing that runs through my mind is you talked about, um, you know, pulling in the clutch to to disconnect the power. Like for instance, if you're in mud and you're you're picking your way through some mud and the rear wheel starts to spin and you start to go sideways, the first thing you do is pull that clutch in, and that stops you from from your sideways turn and will roll you straight again. But you don't have that option. Yeah, in low traction situations, it is possible to control it well using just your throttle hand, but uh, you do have to be fast. Okay, and you'd have to change your riding style because with a clutch lever, you can actually be pulling on the handlebars a little bit and still pulling your clutch, no problem, at any time. Whereas this, you've got to be in a position where you can roll that throttle back. That's right. Yeah, it's it's pure throttle. I think it's, even though it's very controllable, I think it's most difficult when it's rocky and bumpy. Um, at least me, me personally, if you're riding something really rocky and bumpy, I'm, I'm using that clutch to even out any inadvertent inputs to the throttle. And you just can't do that on the electric bike. Mm-hmm. And the other thing too, is you pick your gear on a gas bike. So when you're in first gear, you can rev it out in first gear. And as we all know, you're not going very fast, but with the electric bike, you don't have that choice or do you, or is there a mode you can put it in where, where your, your throttle changes the, the amount of power that it gives you with the turn? It does have something, uh, three ride modes. One is called eco mode that restricts the power and the top speed to, I think, 70 miles an hour. Um, I didn't ride it in that. I like to ride it in custom mode with full power and no regen rolling off the throttle. So it would just coast. It's a little more efficient to ride that way. But then full regen when I pull in the brake lever. 
So that's mostly how I wrote it was in that custom mode. But yeah, but there's no like equivalent of first gear. Or, no, no. Yeah. So, so the problem is when you're in the, in, in low speed maneuvering, if you crack the throttle, the wheel just keeps going. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty controllable at low speed. I think they've done a good job with that. Uh, just pure throttle at low speed. Uh, let's say you're doing a U-turn and full lock on the handlebars, which the, the turning on the zero is not very tight. It's not like a dirt bike. It's, it kind of steers like a truck. So that happens a lot. So, um, and most bikes, gas bikes, if you're doing a full lock turn, you're going to rev the engine a little bit and regulate your speed to balance it using the clutch. Mm-hmm. But, uh, again, with this, all you can do is, is throttle. But, uh, after a bit of practice, I got the hang of that too. Balance wise, is it, is it fine? You get the hang of it? No problem from riding a gas bike? Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that part is fine. That's easy um, to do. Just in this case, it was loaded pretty heavy and, um, I wanted to, but didn't have the time or really the budget to do anything with the suspension. So it was just the stock suspension, um, turned the preload up all the way and cranked up the compression, uh, to, so that I didn't bottom, bottom, especially the forks. Uh, I had trouble with that. I had to ride slow in a lot of places to avoid bottoming those. So uh, what was the ride like you know, overall? What, what, was it difficult? Were there tough sections? Uh, you know, do you have some, some stories about dealing with some of these tough sections? Well, uh, it was a great ride. Uh, we really enjoyed it. I recommend the TAT to, to really anybody who's, who's interested. Uh, it's not hard enduro across the U.S. Mostly it's just little gravel back roads and riding through farmland and countryside and be careful it's, choosing what extra loops you might want to do. We chose, uh, when we got to Moab, we chose to ride the White Rim Road, um, which is pretty pretty famous. And uh, that is not officially on the Trans-America Trail route. And I would just make sure you know what you're doing before, <laughs> before <laughs> the, riding the White Rim Road on the Zero in particular was fairly inappropriate. And I think we got pretty lucky. <laughs> it's a hundred miles of proper four by four road and the zero is not an adventure bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was tough. So, so when you say that, that's, that's nothing to do with it being electric power that, that you're talking suspension. Yes. It's suspension and the weight of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, almost 600 pounds or, or maybe that day we took some things off. Well, in the geometry, in the geometry, the riding geometry of a zero is much closer to, um, like my Ducati monster, when you sit on oh, it, wow. the, the reach to the bars and the reach to the pegs, it's not designed for standing and riding like an off-road bike. So, I mean, he has riser handlebars and things on it, but it's not, it's not a proper dirt bike or off-road bike. And, and the right rim road is, um, I, I'm not the world's greatest rider and I found it to be more challenging than I was expecting. <laughs> and, uh, it, you have to commit <laughs> there's some steep rocky scrambles next to some steep drop-offs and uh yeah you need to <laughs> if you're doing the trans-america trail i would just be aware of your riding ability before choosing to do something like that kevin you also did you change it from a belt to chain drive i did so zeros come with a tooth belt drive kind of uh, kind of like a timing belt but a bit wider and we didn't think that that would survive this much off-road punishment. So uh, Zero does sell a chain drive kit. And so we, we put that on. 
It's just a couple of sprockets and, and a chain. Um, one thing about that, though, that I don't really like is the rear sprocket is aluminum. And by the time we made it to Arkansas, it was noticeably worn. And so during the middle of the trip, we had to order in another sprocket and change it out. And by that time, the sprocket had worn so much that it killed the chain. So, you know, we had to put on yeah. new chain and sprocket. And did you change your front sprocket as well? No, it's a steel sprocket and it was still fine. Uh, still running with that. Yeah. Uh, if it had been steel all around, it would have made it no problem. Yeah. Well, usually when it takes a chain out, it ends up taking both sprockets out, doesn't it? I mean, it, depending how worn it gets. But so I imagine that that um, the, any of the, the sprockets, well, the chain you could probably get, but the sprockets are probably only from zero then. Yeah. Um, the rear sprocket has 65 teeth. So it's, it's a big pie plate of a sprocket. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's kind of custom. I'm looking into getting some, a replacement custom made for that, but we, I haven't done it yet. We got more comments on the rear sprocket than any other part of the bike. Cause it's, <laughs> it's like this noticeably like ridiculously large sprocket and everybody had something to say about that. Oh really? It's like a mini bike. The mini bikes, remember some of those ones yeah, that had yeah. Brazen and engines, they had a massive rear sprocket cause it didn't have any torque. Right. Well, the reason is on a normal gas bike, you have some gears in the transmission reducing engine speed down to that front sprocket speed, which is slower. And then you have a bit more reduction in the final drive. But on the zero, it's just the electric motor with a sprocket driving the rear wheel. So all the reduction from the motor to the wheel is in that single chain reduction. When you're riding a gas bike, and particularly when you're riding it slow, you, you can do things like pulling the clutch and rev it up, and you get some sort of stabilizing effect by the gyroscopic effect of the, the spinning engine and parts in there. Do you get any of that when you're riding the Zero? No, the inertia is quite a bit lower, and the motor's turning slower than a gas bike motor, and you don't have the flywheel or anything in there. So, no, you don't have that advantage. Hmm. I, I did notice one change. I was often following him with the WR, and because it has so much torque, um, even if he was trying to be careful, but a lot of times he was just out having a good time, that bike is the roosting machine. He <laughs> will throw rocks. I, I learned to leave much more following distance and to not stop directly behind him when he was taking off because he will toss rocks behind that bike in a way that I've never seen him do on any other bike. Is that right? So you need one of those chest protectors that the dirt riders have, right? <laughs> I, yeah, so I, I don't know. Well, that's the nice thing about not having to shift is you don't have to stop power sliding. <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's uh so there's advantages there as well um to it do, do you think the electric took away from the adventure itself or, or was it the adventure did it really make it well i think the ride itself we had a great time uh regardless of what bikes we were on um really enjoyed it met a lot of interesting people and uh you know saw a lot of the countryside and taking the electric bike did add some challenge. It was something else to think about. Uh, we've done so much motor touring and camping that we've got all that down, you know, but um, keeping the electric bike running uh, added some interest for us. Um, one problem we did have is towards the beginning of the trip, we rolled into New Albany, Mississippi and pulled up to a charger that we'd planned and the bike wouldn't charge. So, okay, sometimes some chargers don't work. So we rode to another one in town and plugged in and the bike still wouldn't charge. And so, you know, if you can't charge the electric bike, you're not going on a ride anymore. Mm -hmm. 
And so we got a hotel and in the hotel parking lot, I started digging into it. I realized that the charger controller for the DigiNow chargers, so this is an aftermarket part, the charger controller had failed. So it's one little box that tells those four chargers what to do. And it had just stopped working. And so without that part, we're thinking, well, this is the end of our ride. Did you still have the ability to go the long charge route and just plug it into 120? No. Um, We were all in on the fast chargers. I had taken off the built-in zero charger, which goes under the battery pack. No, I see. Basically between the skid plate and the battery pack Mm -hmm. uh, to save about 15 pounds. And also it would have gotten just beat up anyway. It would have failed. So we'd already taken that off. So it was either we get this charger, the aftermarket chargers to work, or we're getting a truck and going home. But you're sitting there with aftermarket chargers that aren't made or supported anymore. Yep. Yes. (laughs) With custom proprietary software on, basically the controller is based on an Arduino with software we don't have access to. Right. Wow. So, right. This was a heart sinking moment, but um, I had identified this as a single point of failure before the trip. And um, one of the guys from DigiNow, Morgan, we had gotten to talking on the electric motorcycle forum, and he offered to build me another controller to have ready as a spare. This is before you left. That's right. So we had done that, and I had shipped the parts to him, and he had programmed it and shipped it out to me. And so I had that back home, but we hadn't brought it along because I thought this was kind of a long shot that we would need this. And you can't carry every spare for a motorcycle that just gets crazy after a while. Sure. So we're in Mississippi and the part we need is at home in North Carolina. And not only that, but this controller, we didn't test the new one before it came in because we got it just before we left on the trip. And it's not potted or anything. It's just a loose collection of parts in, in the controller. So it's not even like ready to be installed. Oh, I see. So this is going to take some work to actually get into the bike. This is not a plug and play. Oh, and it's not even a direct replacement. It's the next version, which required some additional changes to the motorcycle. Mm -hmm. All right. So here's how it went. I called up my friend back in North Carolina. I'd already shown him the box of spares. So he knew where to get that. And I called him at about 8 PM. His time. His time. Yep, and asked him to go get that part and get it down to the FedEx shipment center at the Greensboro airport because they accept packages up to 9 p.m. And so he got in the car and hustled down, got the part, drove down to the airport and got it in. I think the the ticket said something like 8.54 p.m. and shipped it next day air. So we actually got the parts uh, the next morning about 10 a.m. And then I, I had to run around and get some other parts because I needed to um, add a switch and a resistor to enable charging. And where do you buy resistors now that Radio Shack is closed? Yeah. So he got on my WR and like rode down to Tupelo, Mississippi and took himself to Elvis's birthplace while he was there. Well, you like, have to, yeah. <laughs> hang, up on a second. Hang on Hang on. He <laughs> left you, Amy, and then we're looking for a part in a panic and then goes to see Elvis's monument. Oh, like, I was good. We were at a hotel by the interstate. I was, I was fine. I was like, I'm not going to run to, I'm not going to run to Tupelo to get a resistor for you. You can go. Well, how could you go to Tupelo without stopping by? Sure. Yeah. So anyway, I did all that in the morning. And by the time I got back, the parts had arrived and I spent, uh, the middle part of the day, first testing it, I plugged in the new controller and the chargers worked. So 
uh, that was a big relief. And then it was just a matter of packaging it properly. So we were, we got set up with a hot milk glue gun on the hotel nightstand and um, had a little box with the circuit board in it and then just poured hot glue in around it to seal it up so that it's a completely sealed box with just the wires coming out to plug into the chargers. So this is just like some electronic part you'd find in a car. I mean, you know, some of, some of the ignition modules and stuff. If you, you unbolt it, flip it over, and you can actually see the components underneath the, the, the semi-clear uh, sealant that seals everything in. That's what you're talking about. Exactly. It's kind of the cheapo version of that with uh, a hot glue gun that we bought from Lowe's nearby. <laughs> yeah, but it worked. Um, we plugged it in, and that worked. So then uh, it took a couple more hours to um, rig up the switch and the charge enable and uh, package everything back together and get it all tidied up. And I think we were back on the road by about 2 p.m. So it was actually less than 24 hours from, oh no, the ride's over to uh, back on the road. And that's how you know the technology is not ready for the mainstream is when our trip involves potting electronics on a hotel nightstand in order yeah. to keep going. That's not, <laughs> yeah, not really. Mean, this is not like replacing a coil on, on your, your WR, you know, which you, could be a job uh, for somebody, but um this is this is much more complicated, and it gets me thinking as as I'm sitting here. I mean, you, you've talked about chargers, and you've talked about charge rates and levels of charges and batteries and things like this. And are these terms? Do, do you guys picture these terms and 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 dealing with this sort of thing becoming mainstream? In other words, so that the average rider is going to know all about you know oh amperage draw and and um, how to repair minor electronics, or will it be more of a um, an operator? Will we ride these electric bikes and when they break, just get off it and say, fix me? So if you're not trying to do something like riding the TAT with a bike that's not made for it, you can buy an electric motorcycle today. And one of the advantages is there's so much less maintenance. There's no oil to change or air filters. Um, you're mostly just going to ride it. You're just going to ride it. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. right. Uh, You'll really, be an operator. If you're, if you're commuting with this, you use the stock charger and you ride to work, you come home and you plug it in in your garage and then you do the same thing the next day. And that's about all you ever do. Maybe you change a belt out every few years, you change tires and brakes, and that's like all the wear items on the bike. So for most people, an electric bike is even simpler to own and operate than a gas bike. I think the charging language about kilowatts and kilowatt hours and amp draw, I do think that will become more mainstream. I think anything about repair or electronics will remain with the enthusiasts. I don't think any of that's going to be mainstream. I don't think it'll be necessary. I mean, the only way that could be is if it's component changes, right? I mean, if, if you're looking at, um, you know, uh, unplugging cards, well, it wouldn't be cards in this case, but if it was if it was a component, if you could swap out one component or another, like in other words, your charge controller, if that was a plug-in component that one could change and it became something that, yeah, every now and then they go, they could change that. But But what's the chance of that nowadays? Most likely it won't go. Remember, this was a aftermarket part by a small company. Um, low volume production. Low volume production. So it's nicer than just some hobbyist in a garage, but not not like an OEM production part. These are not tier one automotive grade parts. That's right. <laughs> they're, they're consumer grade parts. 
Yeah. I mean, you mentioned about some chargers are finicky. You, you went into some places and um, I think you found a brand, didn't you, that a brand of charging station that didn't work well for you? <laughs> That's right. Um, for some reason, the Schneider electric chargers don't like to interface with our equipment on the Zero. Even aside from that, just in general, if, if you've never traveled with any kind of electric vehicle, the infrastructure is wildly inconsistent. There's lots of different brands and a lot of these public chargers, there was capital to put them in, but no capital to maintain them. So they haven't been maintained and they don't work. So PlugShare is pretty good about keeping information updated about whether or not any given charger is available and working or not, but it's you can't rely on pulling up to a public public charger and having it work, and especially not if you have a non-stock sort of vehicle. There's there's no telling whether or not you're going to be able to charge there. So that was another added challenge is there's only so many places to charge along the Transamerica Trail with this vehicle with low range. And if you're counting on one and it's the only one, you really cross it into your fingers hoping that one's not like out of service for some reason. Right. So. In one case, we rolled into Trinidad, Colorado with about 2% battery oh, this left. this is a good story. I like this one. And we'd already scouted out an electric co-op had um, a charger up front. So we uh, pulled up to it and plugged in. Um, and my bike can use two J-plugs. So normal car will only use one, but I can use two. And it had two, so great. I plugged in and a couple minutes later, the charge point just went dead. Screens off, not charging anymore. And we traced it back to each J-plug can supply 32 amps. So you'd have a fuse for 40 amps. They had the entire unit, which has two J-plugs, fused for 40 amps. So it was only fused to supply power to one J-plug. This was such a huge facepalm moment. This is a brand new, I mean, the concrete was new. The device was new. This was a brand new professionally installed public electric vehicle charge point. And they had only put in half the fusing they needed for the service that they installed. It was ridiculous. Well, now, would that be a wiring thing or is it just a software setup? No, um, the wiring going to the charge point was too small to carry 80 amps and the fuse was sized to protect the wiring. And it was fine so long as you only plugged in a single J plug at a time, but I used both. And so once we realized the problem, we're, we're thinking, oh, great, what are we going to do now? About that time, some folks rolled up in a Tesla and I just had to say, uh, yeah, sorry, the uh, charger's not working for some reason. We didn't tell him that we broke it. <laughs> <laughs> we just said it wasn't working. They and had to go down to the state park and charge at the, the RV campground. We weren't abusing it. If two cars had showed up at the same time, yeah, same uh, thing same would have happened. happened. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Now, if you had had the, um, the original charger on for the Zero, would you have had the compatibility issues that you ran into? Like you were talking about, you know, where they do sort of a handshake and they talk back and forth, the charger and the, and the bike. W was that anything to do with the aftermarket setup that you put on? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a hack together, you know, setup. So uh, I take the blame for some incompatibility. Right. Uh, most, most charge points worked, but especially the German ones don't seem to work. I think they're a little fussier about tolerances. When you said J1772, the, the plug, that's a yeah. standard plug for charging electric vehicles. That's what it is, right? That's right. So uh, most any electric vehicle you see is going to have a socket for a J plug. 
Right. So it's it's pretty standard. All and of your like plug-in hybrid cars are using J plugs. Yeah. Okay. Now with your bike, when you with the zero, you're actually carrying a cord. Then are probably two cords, I guess. Are you um, to plug it into two forty? Yeah, I have an adapter to plug into the RV fifty amp. Another adapter for the RV thirty amp. I have uh, four six foot long cords that I can use in. I can string them together if I'm going to slow charge, but can't get too close to an outlet. Mm. And I also carried something called a Tesla tap that lets me use a Tesla destination charger, not the superchargers, which are DC fast charge, but just the destination chargers like you have at a hotel or a B&B. Mm-hmm. And I can charge with that also. That just converts, the Tesla tap just converts from Tesla's proprietary connector over to J1772 so you can plug into your bike. Right. One thing that I think of, in particular with riding something like the TAT, is you did mention that you're camping sometimes at campgrounds, but you have to camp where you're charging this machine up. So if you want to wild camp, how are we ever going to wild camp when we have to charge our bikes? We we wild camped a couple of times. How do you do that? How did that work? Quite a few times. Well, um, it just means that, let's say you charge in the afternoon and ride 50 miles and then find a nice spot to camp that's out in the woods, well, you just do that. And then the next day, you're going to have 70 miles that you can ride before you get to a charger, and then you have to fast charge. So just bring so, it up. Yeah, it's um, it's no different than a gas bike in that sense, that you don't have to camp in, in gas station parking lots every night. Um, the ability to fast charge means that it doesn't take all day to charge. It takes an hour. So... It's not so bad. It, it really is dependent on whether or not we had the fast charging available, the, the ability to charge in that hour or less time frame if we were just topping up. Um, if you, There are a few places where you only have slow charging available, and that it really is more efficient to stop where you can plug in overnight so that you're starting the day with a, with a full charge. Um, but there were plenty of places where there was an RV campground or a public charger so if that's the case, if you're willing to spend that hour, you know, during the day to charge up, you can just camp any wild bush camping place that you want to. Sometimes what we would do is wild camp. And then the next morning we would just pack up without cooking breakfast and ride somewhere, maybe an hour to where we could plug in and charge while cooking breakfast. Oh, that's a good idea. Or, or even grab breakfast at a restaurant or something like that that you pull up and and uh, plug in there if you could. Yeah, we would we would often, to be a bit efficient with time, we, we eat a lot out of grocery stores and things. We don't really eat out a lot when we're traveling. So he would plug in the bike and I'd run to a grocery store. Or there's definitely pictures of us with our little camp stove in some parking lot next to a charger somewhere making eggs and oatmeal or something and <laughs> like, you know, sitting next to it. But yeah, we would try to take care of whatever chores we needed to take care of. I mean, if you're going to sit there and, and plug in the bike, but we found that we just adjusted adjusted our travels a little bit, you know, you're going to sit there for probably an hour waiting on the bike. And some people think, well, that's, you know, that's a long time. What are you going to do? But when you're traveling, there's always, we had to check the weather. If there was, you know, reception, we would check the weather and check emails. We try to figure out um, where we were staying for the night or check distances to the next charge point. We would stretch, do exercises, eat. I mean, by the time we got done, you know, running any little errands or doing any of that sort of stuff, a lot of times we weren't really waiting on the bike. We would just 
compressed the things you would spend time doing anyway into the times where we were charging. You know, that makes sense. I, I see. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And and I see the chargers a lot now, at least in, in, you know, they're just getting them out there in a lot of places. They're, they're maybe grocery stores. Sometimes they're in the middle of nowhere, which is really kind of weird. I know there's one on Vancouver Island in a place called Was, which um, there's only the store there. And uh, well, there's a restaurant, I guess, too. So I mean, you could sit there. But to me, put them in, you know, coffee shops. Th- that would be the ideal setup, wouldn't it? If you owned a coffee shop, have a charger out front. Yeah, and plenty of them do. So sometimes we would end up in a little town where there's uh, shops and a cafe, maybe a little deli, all close by to the chargers. So, you know, it's it's not so bad to have to spend a little bit of time hanging out in a place like that. We actually found that it helped us fight go fever where you're just trying to get as many miles on and and see how far you can get um, or or whatever. Having that enforced time to stop actually helped us feel physically a little bit better having some rest time off the bike instead of taking 20 minutes, 15 or 20 minutes, maybe for a quick stop at a gas station or even less, just fuel up and keep riding. You're forced to take a little bit of break, which I think if you're going to try to be riding all day, day after day is just better physically for your body to, to take yeah. a little bit more time to rest. Yeah. To, to be forced to do it. Yeah, that's true. That, that makes perfect sense. Less fatigue. Did, did you find that when you're stop places charging this thing up, does it attract people more than the, the WR? Middle-aged men, if that's what you want to attract, then yes. Yeah, it's great for meeting middle-aged men. Yes. <laughs> they're, they're the ones that are, uh, that sounds very derogatory, the way you guys are saying it. But, but uh, I'm speaking as one, but I know that. I know. that's who's interested. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, that's, they're interested because they understand the concept. They understand what it is. Yeah, but uh, one thing about it is when you're, when you're traveling on a loaded-up bike and you have a license plate from far away, uh, people notice that and want to talk to you. And if you're at a gas station, you might feel like you're in a hurry and you kind of, you know, you answer a few of their questions and then, you know, put on your helmet and ride off. Right. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you've got an hour to charge, well, you can hang out and chat a while. So we met some interesting folks along the way that way that we wouldn't have spent much time with otherwise. Where does this take you now with the zero with electric bikes? Now, it, after doing this and experiencing what you did on this trip, does it, push you now to get another zero? Do you look more into electrics or was this just sort of a a project that you've completed now? No, I really like the bike. Uh, I have two other motorcycles in the garage, but really a lot of the time when I need to run an errand, I hop on the zero. It's uh, it's a really fun bike to ride. And yeah, we probably will do some more trips with it. I I was just looking at um, the Northeast BDR. That's about 1,300 miles up from New York up into Maine uh, with a lot of off-pavement. And uh, that looks actually pretty easy to do with the Zero. It's going to be cake compared to yeah. the Transamerica Trail. <laughs> the East is so much denser that um, it looks like there's a charging location every 100 miles along that route. Easy, without even looking too hard. Which is really nice because with the extra battery on the Zero... Um, I think one thing we didn't talk about is the slower you go in an electric vehicle, the farther you can go. So when you're, when you have a long ways to go between your charge points, the way you get there is by slowing down. And so sometimes on the Trans America Trail, you could just ride 
the zero however you wanted to at whatever speed you felt comfortable because the difference, you know, the distance was short enough. But on those, there were a lot of places where in order to, in order to make it, there was some hypermiling going on and you'd have to ride really slowly. And I think I deserve a lot of credit for the patience. You know, there were times when we'd be down at 30 or 25 miles an hour or something in order to make it part of, yeah, part of the challenge. And, um, so we really like it when we were able to go less than a hundred miles, that hundred miles between charge points is the magic number on that machine where you really don't have to pay attention to your speed. As far as range is concerned, you can just kind of ride. However, you know, you, you feel like riding, you don't have to be concerned about stretching the range on it. And I think, um, the Northeast BDR looks like you won't have to do much of that hypermiling stuff in order to make it. Yeah. In fact, for the any BDR, I could probably take out the extra battery, yeah. save the weight. Mm. Yeah, you, you were you're talking about slowing down to save energy and go farther for because of wind resistance. That's right. Uh, motorcycles are not very aerodynamic, especially with luggage attached. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, the biggest thing using up your range is speed and uh, the aerodynamic drag. So at 60 miles an hour, you might have a range of 90 or 100 miles. But at 30 miles an hour, you have a range more like 180 miles. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so is there, is, and is there an ideal speed? Like I know with my bike, there's a, you know, I know roughly a speed and RPM I can do to get maximum fuel efficiency. Did you have that or is it just the slower you go, the better you do? With an electric vehicle, the slower you go, the better. The reason is uh, with gas bikes, If you go too slow, yeah, you have less aerodynamic drag, but the engine gets much less efficient. But with the electric bike, the the motor efficiency is pretty flat. So even down to 15 miles an hour, you probably see gains in range, although you'd uh, have to be very patient to ride that slow. I'm going to die of boredom if we ever have to do another 180-mile leg again. (laughs) You'd be falling asleep. (laughs) It was was cold. That day, too, the weather forecast was completely off. So we were expecting 70s and sunny and a slight wind that was going to help us in the direction that we were going. That is not what we got. We ended up with it being 40s and raining like the entire day with this stiff headwind, and we were very, very close to not making it. That was the... There were a few times when we rolled in at less than 10 or 5% to a charger, but most of the time we tried to have more margin in case something didn't work out or we needed to go somewhere else. And we rolled in past the 0% battery to our final destination after that day, after spending the whole day riding at like 20 and 25 miles an hour in 45 degrees and raining with a stiff 20 mile an hour headwind. It was terrible. I do not recommend it. Is, is, does the zero DSR and the WR250R, do they ride compatibly? Like, do they go together on a ride like this? (laughs) Well, with, with my skills, (laughs) no, um, they're not especially compatible, but, um, the way Amy has her WR set up is her adventure bike. You know, she's short. We lowered the bike and set it up for her with luggage. So, it's, it's dialed in to where she can, she can ride a loaded bike anywhere. And then the Zero DSR is kind of big for an adventure bike. And uh, the suspension is kind of soft. So it, was, it, it took some doing to get it through without damaging the bike. If, if I had just ridden as fast as I wanted, 
I would have really beat that bike up. So, but if you had both been on zeros, then you would have been riding side by side sort of thing, even when you're going slow. Well, yeah. Yeah, I think so. The problem is, um, Amy's not going to be comfortable riding a bike that's almost 600 pounds off-road. No. She, she did it a little bit, but in the technical stuff, it would have been a very bad idea. Yeah, I mean, it's fine on a gravel road or something, but it's actually a little bit tall for me, and it's very, very heavy, and I just don't want to ride a bike that big off-road. I mean, I want to be clear. I've ridden, like, I took the the class at um, the BMW Performance Center, and I rode a 1200 GS for two days. I mean, I can do it. I just mm-hmm. don't want to. That doesn't sound fun to me at yeah, all. Extra work. I'm, I'm five foot four, you know? Right. <laughs> but there is something really magical about riding that electric bike, especially on these like uh, national forest roads in Virginia. Um, just riding a bike through the woods with that quiet. Um, it's, it's really a, a very cool experience. Yeah. You can ride along and you can hear crickets and birds and you sneak up on more wildlife because they're not scared away by the engine noise. I mean, we're motorcyclists. We like sometimes like the engine noise and I miss um, you know, the, the operation of the bike. And there's some, I, I definitely think there's something missing from, from the electric bike that, that you can only get with a gas bike, but I don't know that they're directly compare, you know, directly comparable. There are so many things about the electric bike. It's just a different experience. There's so many things about the electric bike that I really like. There are definitely times I was envious that he was on the electric bike. I think it causes less fatigue. You just have that much less noise if you're riding it all day. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have helmet radios and we usually leave them on. We like to chat as we ride and while riding with me on the zero, most of the noise that I'm hearing is from her bike coming through over the radio. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, we would actually turn the radios off more than we normally would just so that he could enjoy the experience of, of the quiet. Well, the, a lot of people say that's what they love, about, not what they love, but that's what they would miss is the the sound of the engine, the feel uh, of, uh, of cracking the throttle and feeling the engine build up the power. Those sorts of things is a lot of people think it's an integral part of the motorcycle experience. But in my mind, it, it's a transition thing. It's kind of like if you look at from when, when we were younger and didn't have cell phones to people, young kids now who grow up with smartphones and to them, that's just what it is. I mean, th- there is no other way. There was no other way. So once we transition into electric, you will feel different things. You will experience different things. You you will recognize the fact that you're hearing more. And, and probably people will say that's what they love about you know, their motorcycles. They're able to hear things as they ride. I, I think it's um, people make a false dichotomy out of it. It's not an either or. You can like both for their own reasons. Mm. I, I mean, I do. I, I'm not ready to give up my gas bikes but I am really looking forward to getting an electric bike. What about in the cold? You did mention that day you were riding and it was very cold or, or coldish and um, the, you were, had to ride at the slow speeds. What about the battery life in the cold? Did you notice it being heavily affected by that? Because lithium ions are, themselves are, are known for yes. that. Yeah, so batteries can provide less energy when they're cold. So compared to a 90 degree day, a 45 degree day Fahrenheit, um, you're probably losing 10 or 15% range. And that hurt us when we were in Utah trying to go 180 miles between charges. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was colder than forecast and raining, which also cools the battery. So uh, that basically took all the margin that we thought we had 
And so we, we really coasted in on fumes, so to speak. Yeah. And th- that could blindside you, you know, just like that. You, you plan and, and you think you're good. And then all of a sudden the weather changes. And I mean, you could say the same thing about a, a gas powered motorcycle, but it's not quite the same. The lithium ion is, is more affected obviously by the, by the cold and it's internal resistance, isn't it? Well, I don't know enough about the chemistry to really give you a deep fundamental reason, but uh, I do know that it definitely has less range in the cold. There's a lot of math on this trip. (laughs) How far (laughs) is it to the next charge point and what's our battery percentage? There was a lot of mentally doing a lot of you know, math. Of course, we probably did it more than we had to. We sort of enjoy that thing. Some people would really resent having to do it, but for us, it was a game. You know, can we, are we going to get this thing on this kind of tough route all the way across the country, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's, that's part of the fun. I know I, I can definitely see that. And, and of course, in, in the future with, with having more charging stations around, I mean, I guess it will just be a non-issue. We, we'll be used to it and, and figure out ways to deal with it. Did you guys have any, any other anecdotes about your trip that you wanted to tell? Oh, sure. Uh, just in general, um, electric bike or not, um, if you enjoy traveling on motorcycles, the TAT was unlike any trip that we had done. We had done a lot of touring around by road and have just started getting into BDR-like adventure riding. We've done uh, a couple of those um, and the Transamerica Trail is a unique experience and a very, very neat and interesting way to experience this country. Uh, it was very, you know, very cool way to see the United States. Um, I, I really, I really enjoyed the trip and and the variety. I wish we'd had fewer weather challenges. We had flooding we had to go around and some major weather events. And then across the middle of the country, it was just brutally hot and humid, you know, 105 degrees and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, But by the time we got to Colorado in September, we had just like stunningly perfect weather from there west. It was, it was just wonderful. So um, just in general, the Transamerica Trail was something that had been on our list for a long time. And I would definitely recommend if it's, if it's something that calls to you, don't wait, just, just go do it. It was very cool. Right. We um, managed to finish here on this long trip. It took us two months. Some people do it much quicker. I wouldn't recommend doing it quicker. Slower is, is much better. But people do the trip at their own pace. And, you know, there's other riders doing the Transamerica Trail. And we happened the day that we finished, five of us all finished on the same day. Um, we rode down on the beach. And uh, that was a pretty neat way to finish up and and camp with some people and hear about hear about their stories and their various versions of their trip across the country as well. So that was pretty unusual. We thought hardly see any riders the whole way across. And then five of us finished the same day. Um, but I think as far as the zero goes, Kevin, you're the very first electric motorcycle to ever do the Transamerica trail. Yeah, we believe so. Um, as far as we know, nobody has even attempted it, much less actually completed it. Did you submit a Guinness, uh, application or anything? <laughs> No. Oh. I mean, as far as we know, prior to 2021, there's only five people on record having ridden across the U.S. at all on electric motorcycles. And then in 2021, five more went across. So I think that's a big testament to the changes that are happening yeah. at this time. Yeah. And then down the road, people will say, so what? What's the big deal? People do it all the time. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
Not that we really cared, but we weren't actually quite the first to get an electric vehicle across the TAT. Um, this same year, unknown to us until later they published it, Rivian, the the truck manufacturer, the, the new startup, they took some pre-production factory-sponsored Rivian trucks um, across the Transamerica Trail. Um, and they did a whole article in Motor Trend and a, a short video series that you can see on YouTube. And those vehicles are really neat, but they definitely get the credit for the first vehicles to go all the way across, right. first electric vehicles. The, the Rivian was uh, the the truck that was used with uh, Ewan and, and Charlie with the, uh, yes. the South right. to North trip. Yeah. yeah that's right. And those were test mules down in South America. Uh, the ones this year were factory sponsored and pre-production, but pretty close to what is now available to buy. Oh, I see. Yeah, because I think the ones they used were, were just assembled right before they started their trip and right. hand-assembled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kevin, Amy, thank you very much for, for sharing your story. And um, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about electric motorcycles as we move forward. Thank you very much. Thank you. I was speaking with Kevin and Amy Edwards from North Carolina, and we've got a load of great photos from Amy and Kevin's trip coast to coast on the TAT with their modified zero motorcycle, all in the show notes of this episode, including some build photos. If you're interested in seeing what those chargers, chargers are like or what the boxes were like that they made, all of that on our website in the show notes for this episode at adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and to you the listener thank you very much for being a part of this hey if you're not doing it already this show is built on a model of advertising and listener support we need your support and i've said this before don't sit back and think that everybody else is going to do it because you know how this sort of thing goes most people don't so the the vast majority do not support drop by our website adventureriderradio.com click on support anything ten dollars or more gets you an adventure rider radio sticker. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw show. And while I've mentioned that, we have our other show, Raw, that comes out once a month. That's a lot of fun. A group of us sit around and talk about motorcycle travel. All all available, of course, where you find podcasts. And you can find information about it on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Well, now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name's Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Ah!